Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Acts chapter 13, verses 34 through 52. We will conclude Paul and Barnabas' ministry to the citizens of Antioch of Pisidia. The last audio, we took them there, and they did some uh, ministry in the Jewish synagogue there. They appealed to the Old Testament Scripture, and we left them off quoting Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I become your father. And they refer that probably to the resurrection of Jesus. At the resurrection of Jesus is when the, the father becomes the father of the son. And so once again we see in the gospel message of the disciples, they emphasize the resurrection of Jesus. Now we're going to pick up that thought here in the middle about the resurrection of Jesus starting in Acts 13 verse 34. Paul continues, Since he, God the Father, raised him, God the Son, from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to God. Now here Paul ties the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus, with the covenant blessings made to David. Well, what are the covenant blessings made to David? That's basically Christian salvations, the, 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 those who... Uh, in Paul's day and in the days following, believe in Jesus Christ. He was quoting Isaiah 55, 3. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live, says Isaiah. I will make an well, of course, he's speaking for God. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the promises assured to David. So Isaiah is talking about an everlasting covenant that will last forever. And he's referring to the covenant with David as the source from which those promises come. Well, what are the promises of David? This is well known to any Old Testament Jew. We go to Second Samuel verses 11 through 12. This is Nathan's famous prophet, a prophecy to David. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, this is God speaking, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. So there's the promise, a house. That means descendants. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, Nathan continues speaking to David, the king, when you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant. Of course, that's referring to Jesus, who will come from your body. That refers to the fact that Jesus' natural physical body was descended from David in a direct line. That was David was his ancestor. He was David's descendant. This descendant will come from your body, Nathan continues, and I, God, speaking, speaking about God, I will establish his kingdom. God will establish the Davidic kingdom, which is through Jesus. This idea is reflected in Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Of course, his chosen one is David. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. God the Father has made this covenant. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So God made a deal. He made a covenant with David and says, I will give you offspring. Well, who's the offspring? Who's the seed? Well, that's Jesus. And of course, we are in Jesus, so we're David's offspring also. Because that throne, that kingdom is going to be built up for all generations, on and on and on and on. Psalm 89, 28 through 29 says the same thing. I will always preserve my faithful love for him. It's talking about David, but it's talking about David as a type because the, God is going to preserve his faithful love for Jesus, the descendant, and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. So the descendant of David is going to have his throne established forever by God, and his throne is going to last 
as long as heaven lasts, i.e. forever. That's referring to us, folks, the covenant promises of David. The King James quotes the covenant promises of David, the, or the faithful covenant blessings, as the Holman Christian Study Bible uh, translates verse 34 in Acts 13, the faithful covenant blessings. The King James says the sure mercies, which to me is an unfortunate translation. It doesn't really, doesn't really mean anything to me, but faithful covenant blessings, that's blessings for David and for us. And of course, this is awful continuing on the covenant blessings of Abraham, which was even before David. That's the theme of the Old Testament, the promise. Psalm 89, 36, same idea. His offspring, David's offspring, will continue forever. His throne like the sun before me. How long is the sun going to last? Basically forever. And he's going to last before God. Who is going to last before God? His offspring. That's, that's Jesus. And, of course, us, too, because we're, we're, in, we're in Jesus. And so what... Paul and Barnum, or Paul right here is saying is that, hey, because Jesus died, excuse me, because Jesus rose again from the dead and is never going to decay, which means he's never going to die again, that means he has the ability to establish a throne forever and ever and ever, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. And you Pisidian Antiochian Jews have a chance to be in this kingdom if you would so desire. We go to verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another passage that therefore is referring to the resurrection that Jesus would rise and his body would never see decay. Because of that resurrection, he, God, also says in another passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Again, he's referring to resurrection. And again, I emphasize, as I have in previous audios, how important the resurrection is to the evangelistic ministry of the early apostles. They talked about it all the time. Peter did in earlier sections of Acts. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 16.10. David says, David wrote this psalm, For you will not abandon me to Sheol, that's the Old Testament word for Hades, death. You will not abandon me to death. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. So David refers to himself as the faithful one. That's how David used it. But how is it used in the New Testament? Well, now David might have meant it meant to say that you will not allow him to see decay ultimately as he's resurrected from the dead. But the way it's used in the New Testament, since David is a type of Jesus, the New Testament evangelists refer the passage to Jesus because Jesus never did see decay. As John Gill says, we can't apply this verse, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay, because David did see decay, died in in a, a grave. Now, I did point out that maybe it, you could say that maybe David at the end of time was not going to see decay, but I'm not really sure that that's what David meant. Of course, this gets into the problem of how do you interpret Old Testament prophecy, and theologians debate this over and over again. But well, let's just assume that David was referring not to himself but to Jesus. Well, it does apply to Jesus in the New Testament. We can say that with certainty because Jesus' body did not decay. Both According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, both Paul and Peter deny any application to David. Peter, in Acts 2.27, in his famous Pentecostal sermon, says this, Because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Again, he's applying that to Jesus, not David. Acts 2.30-31, again, in that same Pentecostal sermon by Peter, Since he was a prophet, Jesus, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him, excuse me, David, since he, David, was a prophet, he, David, knew that God had sworn an oath to him to sit to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. 
he was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. So Peter is basically making the point, hey, David's tomb's right here in Israel. His flesh is decayed, but Jesus hadn't. He rose again from the dead. Again, the central, as I said, Peter's doing the same thing, appealing to the resurrection of the dead as his main apologetic tool. So this faithful one, faithful one, faithful one that didn't decay is, is Jesus. So Barnabas, uh, Paul excuse me, continues speaking to the Jews in the synagogue at Antioch, says in verse 36 and 37, For David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep, that means he died, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. So Paul is assuming that, that, that David was only referring to Jesus, I guess. Paul was doing that. At least here it sounds like he was. He's saying, look, David decayed, Jesus didn't. Something different about Jesus. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that what Paul is doing here is saying, look, this psalm cannot refer to David. It has to refer to Jesus. And that's probably true. Note how thoroughly Paul refers to the Hebrew scriptures in this Jewish synagogue that he's preaching in. He appealed to the, on the basis of what these people would know. They would know the Jewish scriptures. And Paul, of course, knew, and Barnum's too, I'm sure, but Paul especially knew the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, backwards and forwards. We go now to verses 38 and 39 in Acts 13. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. What's the therefore, therefore, in Acts 38? Because that there is, because Jesus did not decay in the tomb and he was raised. Therefore, because he was raised, now let me tell you that you can be forgiven for your sin. In other words, what Paul is trying to say here is it takes a resurrection to get you forgive, forgiven, because your nasty sins are so nasty, it's going to have to take somebody rising from the dead to overcome the effects of sin, which is death. So therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, this man, because of his resurrection, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. That ought to get their attention. That's a different type of message than they would hear normally on their Sabbath service in the synagogue. Now it says, and Paul continues, everyone who believes in him is justified. Now justified has two senses in English. We can say justified in the sense of vindicated. For example, faith is vindicated by good works, as James says. And this is a confusion. You know, you get James and Paul using two different senses of the word justified, and everybody gets all bollocked up. How, how does this not contradict? Well, justified in the sense of vindicated is the son comes to his father and says, Dad, I got a F of math. And the father says, vindicate yourself, son. Prove to me you're not guilty. Show me that you're not guilty. And then... He says, Dad, I can. There was a computer error. I really made an A. So that's one sense of, is to vindicate. The other sense of justified is to, is to be made righteous just as if you'd never sinned. Now, the NIV Study Bible goes into a very fine theological distinction here and says that justification, this, in the sense of being forgiven for sin, has two aspects. One is the forgiveness of sins and also the gift of righteousness. Well, I don't really, I guess that's why I'm not a theologian. I, I don't see these fine distinctions. To me, forgiveness of sin and getting the gift of righteousness is two ways of saying the same thing. But at any rate, this righteousness that we get is not from the law of Moses, Paul tells the Pisidian Antiochians. Everyone who believes in him is justified from, just made just as if you'd never sinned, made righteous, 
from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. In other words, from every sin that you did, the law of Moses couldn't do a thing to take that sin away. It could not make you righteous, the law of Moses. And this is a common theme, is you are not saved by works. They had a whole reformation based on this. It's amazing how often people forget it. It was one of the major themes of the early presentation of the gospel, and, and there's a good reason for it. It's because we are all legalists at heart. We all love to show what we can do to make ourselves good. We get our resumes out, and we put our medals on our chest and talk about what we did. Well, you didn't do nothing, and, and these Jews who were trying their best to keep the law of Moses, they didn't do anything either to keep to get justified, to get saved. Now, you could read this verse erroneously this way. You could say that Jesus justifies everything that you couldn't be justified through the law of Moses, which means the law of Moses does most of it or some of it, and then there's some things left over that Moses couldn't handle. And so everything that's left over, then Jesus takes care of. Everything that you couldn't be justified from the law of Moses, there's, you know, law of Moses gets rid of sin, A, B, C, D, but uh, Jesus takes care of E, F, G, H, etc. No, that's not what it means. It means nothing from the law of Moses. Let's give a what Paul says to the later when he writes the epistle to the Romans. This is what he says in Romans three twenty one and twenty two. But now, apart from the law, apart from the law, the law has nothing to do with it. What does the law have nothing to do with? God's righteousness has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness was attested by the law and the prophets. The law is holy. It shows you that you're sin and that God is holy. Yes, the righteousness was attested, but it was apart from the law. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, God's righteousness has been revealed (laughs) through Jesus. Apart from the law. Apart from the law. In case you didn't get it, let me say it one more time. Apart from the law. Now this is talking about forgiveness of sins. Getting saved, getting justified, which means getting saved, getting born again, getting regenerated. And since this comes up a lot in theological controversy, what does that mean? Do you just believe and confess, or do you believe, or does repentance have anything to do with it? Is repentance a work? Well, let's read Acts 5:31. God, this is, I think this is Peter speaking in the temple courtyard. Acts 5:31. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Right there, in two clauses that are in opposition to one another, I suspect, to grant repentance and forgiveness. This is the same thing. You, if you want to get forgiven, you got to repent. I say the same thing. What I mean is, in order to get one, you got to get the other. Get, get repentance and forgiveness of sin. So it's not just belief. It's also repentance. I'd say belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You don't just give mental assent by saying, I believe, I believe. No, you believe and you turn away from sin because you don't want to do it anymore. And then you ask Christ, the Holy Spirit, to give you power not to do it anymore because that's what you want. You don't want to do it anymore. We go to Acts chapter 13, verses 40 through 41. Peter, Paul continues to speak to the Jews in the synagogue at uh, Pisidian Antioch. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. And then he quotes prophet. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. Now, where was Paul quoting from? He's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And I'll read that now. Look at the nations and observe... Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. 
In other words, this thing is going to be so bad, you're not going to believe it when you hear. What are they going to hear? They're going to hear that the Babylonians have come in in 586 B.C. and destroyed Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. They're going to be destroyed. Some people say that Paul is conflating, conflating Habakkuk 1.5 with Isaiah 28.14, which says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you mockers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because he mentions mockers there. But at any rate, he's, he's, he's primarily referring to the destruction of Israel. And so that's what he's talking about. See, beware in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 40 and 41. Beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. In other words, beware that you don't get destroyed like Jerusalem was. That's a real seeker-friendly evangelistic message. You're about to get destroyed, Jews. Maybe you might want to get saved. This is a hellfire and damnation evangelistic sermon. Bob Jones would be happy. Joel Osteen would not probably like to read this verse too much. Paul is not averse to using the stick as well as the carrot. Nothing wrong with using the carrot. But a balanced gospel presentation will not only talk about the wonders of the kingdom and the joys of eternal life and Jesus forgiving you for your sins and you living an abundant life and you can put your house on the rock and the winds of the of the of the world will never knock it down and the floods of this life will never destroy your house oh i believe it then if i've done it but we need to remember that the converse the other side of that is you're going to be destroyed if you don't believe in jesus paul didn't have any problem saying that acts 13 verses 42 through 43 luke takes up the narrative as they were leaving the people begged that these matters be presented to them the following sabbath so apparently paul's straightforward and frank gospel message didn't turn them off so that they did not want to hear any more. They did want to hear some more. Now a question arises, these people that are leaving, are they believers? Has any of them believed? Sounds like nobody's believed yet. John Gill and Adam Clark point out that some people say that this means that all the Jews were unbelieving, but I don't think that's necessary. Maybe some believe, but anyway, we don't know. And we see that they followed Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. That sounds like they were believe, believing, doesn't it? Well, what does this mean, continue? Continue in the grace of God. The Greek is ambiguous here, as Adam Clark says. It could, the verse could mean that the Jews and the proselytes, the God-fearers, those Jews persuaded Paul and Barnabas to continue preaching in the grace of God. So we, the verse would read like this. The proselyte. The proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, persuading them and speaking with them to continue in the grace of God and continue to preach to them. John Gill denies that that's the way it should be interpreted. Another way the Greek could be interpreted is, is this way. Paul and Barnabas are persuading the Jews and the proselytes to continue in the faith. Now, John Gill affirms that. Well, which then, if that's the case, then that means that, that uh, Paul and Barnabas actually won some converts on the first Sabbath. So it's a little ambiguous. We don't know. John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned that, that Paul could have won some converts on, on the first Sabbath, depending on how you translate the Greek here. And the Greek is also ambiguous about followed. Who was following whom? Was Paul and Barnabas following the people out, the proselytes out, and the, and the Jews out? Or were the Jews and the devout proselytes following Paul out? Who was persuading whom and who was following whom? Well, I'm just going to assume that the Holman Christian Study Bible here has got it right, that Paul and Barnabas followed them out and persuaded those proselytes, the ones that had believed, to keep following Jesus. That's the straightforward reading of it. 
We go to Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 45. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the message of the Lord. Ah, the whole town. Now we're talking about Gentiles. Not just the, the Jews in the synagogue, and I don't know where they met, but it wasn't in the synagogue. It was in a public place, and the whole town's there to hear. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to oppose what Paul was saying by insulting him. Now, you know, these Jews, they were so narrow-minded, they couldn't believe that the gospel was for the whole world, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and they just hated it. When somebody started talking about, let's bring these dirty Gentile dogs into the kingdom, they were jealous, and so then they started insulting Paul. And the King James has contradicting and blaspheming, not blaspheming Paul, but blaspheming God, of course. But I'm going to assume that this is the, a better translation here. They were insulting Paul. But, of course, when they insulted Paul, they probably blasphemed God and blasphemed Christ in the process. Here's what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said, say, quote, There is nothing more awful than Jewish fury and execration of the name of Jesus of Nazareth when thoroughly roused. And that is the truth. You know, people get on Martin Luther for saying all kind of horrible things against the Jews in his time. They forget the fact that Martin Luther spent a lot of time trying to get them converted, and they were just as pig-headed as these Jews in Pisidian Antioch. And so he started writing some really nasty things about the Jews. And Martin Luther was somebody, you'd get him mad and he'd let he'd unload on you. Well, I was embarrassed. And a lot of people have been embarrassed about what Jewish uh, Martin Luther said about the Jews. But then I started reading about what provoked him and about how the Jewish rabbis had written things such as, Jesus was, was boiling in excrement in the deepest parts of hell. Well, you know, that's pretty offensive. That's pretty blasphemous. And there's some other good quotes, too, which I can't pull off the top of my head. So I think Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are right about that. Boy, I tell you, when you start telling the Jews that they've rejected their Messiah, oh, my gosh, get ready for some blowback. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, though they needed to be bold in this situation, quote, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternity, eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Now this shows a pattern. They go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. That's a pattern that's written in stone really in the in the Bible. The gospel came to the Jews first. The gospel was preached to the Jews first. And why? Because Paul had great compassion for his people. Romans 9, 3 through 4. Let's, you know, let's get off this canard that Paul was anti-Semitic. He was Jewish himself. He loved the Jews. Romans 9, 3 through 4. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers. He's talking about his Jewish brothers. My own flesh and blood. Paul's own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, and the promises. Does that sound anti-Semitic to you? Paul loved the Jews. Romans 10.1. Brothers, he says to the Romans, My heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, the Jews, is for their salvation. That's why he went up there and suffered this abuse. Not because he hated Jews, but because he wanted his brother, his brethren by, in the flesh. He wanted them saved. Now, this idea of the Jew first and then to the Gentiles was even uh, prominent in Jesus' time when he sent his disciples out. Luke 24, 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. We start at Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus at many times says you preach to the Jews only and don't preach to the Gentiles. He made some exceptions, of course, as time went on. 
But that was the general pattern. That the early disciples preached to Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And Paul carried out that message. He said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. First to the Jew, first to the Jew. So he preached first to the Jew, but they didn't listen. And so now they turn to the Gentiles. And of course, they're speaking to Gentiles now. Jews and Gentiles are speaking to the whole town. And he's justifying his preaching to the Gentiles by telling the Jews, look, the reason we're doing this is because we gave it to you first. We went to your synagogue first, and you didn't listen. So now we're going to tell the Jews, uh, the, the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul and Barnabas, whoever's speaking here, it doesn't, it's not clear who's speaking. In verse 46, it says Paul and Barnabas. So maybe they were going tag team style, one after the other. But whoever was speaking here made a quote of a verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the stripe, the me there. My servant means God's servant, God, Yahweh's servant. It is not enough for you to be my Yahweh's servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel, I will also make you a light for the nations. In other words, Isaiah is appealing to his servant, which again, I assume is um, Israel here. I will also also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah is saying Israel's going to be a light for the nations. That's a light for the Gentiles, including the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch. But Israel is not preaching to the Gentiles of Pisidian Antioch. Who is? Paul and Barnabas are. So they boldly take that passage of Isaiah and refer it to themselves. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you. The you is singular. So I guess that means that they're saying I have made, God has made Paul a light for the Gentiles. Or Paul has made Barnabas a light for the Gentiles. We are fulfilling the role of servant Israel in, in not only raising up Israel, but raising up the nations by being a light for the nations, raising up the Gentiles for being a light for the Gentiles. That phrase, light for the Gentiles, in Acts 13:47, that Paul and Barnabas used is the same phrase as used in Isaiah 49:6, light for the nations. And the phrase, salvation to the ends of the earth, used in 49:6, is also used by Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia. He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth, of course, means Gentiles, not just Jews. I left out one famous passage in the New Testament talking about the gospel spreading to all nations, to the Jew first and then to all the Gentiles. How about the Great Commission, Matthew 28:19? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, the nations, of course, of the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That probably set back the particularistic Jews who heard their own scripture quoted back to them. Oh, my, you mean my Jewish scripture says that the gospel is going to be a light for the Gentiles to the ends of the earth, salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, you would think they would be persuaded by it, but instead they got all hot and bothered, and we'll see they insulted Paul and started opposing him. We go now to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. They had a different response than the Jews did, did they not? And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Well, we could just say hallelujah and move on from here. But however, this is a key verse in the Calvinist-Arminian controversy. I've got a good friend of mine who 
was Armenian until he went to he went to an Armenian seminary actually, and he was reading Acts thirteen forty eight, and he says, "My gosh, how did they get around this one?" And he became a Calvinist, and he's a strong Calvinist to this day, Augustinian. So let's look at that. Let's see what the NIV Study Bible says about that phrase, appointed to eternal life. Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. The NIV Study Bible says that belief in Christ requires both divine appointment, one, and two, human faith. I've got no problem with that. I believe that's absolutely true. John Gill, the Calvinist, says that faith is not the cause, but the effect of the divine appointment. The appointment comes first, and then we believe secondly. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say this, quote, A very remarkable statement, which cannot, without force, be interpreted of anything lower than this, that a divine ordination to eternal life is the cause, not the effect, of any man's believing. Well, there you have the standard Calvinist interpretation, which I believe is entirely correct in my humble opinion. But I was curious as to how the Arminians might counter this. And this is how, what they say. The translation of appointed is disposed. So we read the verse this way. The Gentiles, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all of the Gentiles who had been disposed to eternal life believed. In other words, those who had the proper attitude, they were the ones that believed. And so therefore, it's not God's eternal decision as to getting these Gentiles saved, that gets them saved. It's not that. It's people's attitudes. They were in a good mood. They liked what the, the apostles were preaching. This, my friends, I consider so weak that that's why I'm a Calvinist. I always say that when you look at a difficult theological problem, the side that handles its weak spots the best, in my, in my eyes, wins the argument. Because all theological positions have weak spots, otherwise they wouldn't be controversial. I mean, the Calvinists have got their weak spots too, but I believe they handle them okay. But this, this right here, ooh, I don't like this. I don't, this doesn't sway me. Those who were disposed to eternal life believe. Well, first of all, let's point out, as John Gill does, that this translation of disposed just doesn't work. Quote, men are said to be disposed to inhabit or to enact as to vice or virtue, but not to reward or punishment as to heaven or hell. I'm disposed to heaven. I'm disposed to hell. I'm disposed to reward or I'm disposed to punishment. Well, obviously you're not disposed to hell or to punishment. The word disposed doesn't even fit there. This is appointed to eternal life. You're not disposed to eternal life. I mean, that's a, if you are, that's, that's a truism. Of course, everybody wants to live forever. Gill continues, nor does it appear that these Gentiles had any good dispositions to eternal life antecedent to their believing. Yeah, where's the proof that they were disposed to eternal life? I guess cause you could say because they listened to the message. Well, heck, so did the Jews listen to the message, and most of them didn't believe. So you can't say listening to the message was being disposed to believing. Gill in another quote says this, Besides, admitting that they are in some good dispositions to eternal life previous to faith, and that desiring eternal life and seeking after it be accounted such, accounted as a good disposition, yet, th yet these may be where faith does not follow, as in the rich young ruler that came to Christ with such an inquiry and went away sorrowful. In other words, the rich young ruler was disposed to believe. He came to Jesus, Lord, what must I do to receive eternal life? He was disposed to believe, but he didn't. He went away sorrowful, Gill continues. As many, therefore, as are so disposed, do not always believe. Faith does not always follow such dispositions. So your disposition to whether you want to believe or not, Gill says, has nothing to do with whether you actually end up believing. And so it doesn't do to translate this word as disposed. Let me give you another quote from John Gill. 
one would have thought that the Jews themselves, who were externally religious and were looking for the Messiah, and especially the devout and able women, the proselytes, were more disposed unto eternal life than the ignorant and idolatrous Gentiles. And yet the latter believed and the former did not. The undisposed Gentiles believed and the predisposed Jews did not. The Armenians' dodge here, in my opinion, doesn't work. Now, I'm going to give you a quote from Clark. It's a long one, but boy, he really gets worked up on this verse. And the more he gets worked up on the verse, the more I believe he's backing a He's got his money on a losing horse. Quote, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed, this text has been most pitifully misunderstood, I guess, by people like me. Many suppose that it simply means that those in that assembly who were foreordained or predestined by God's decree to eternal life believed under the influence of that decree. Hear, hear. That's what I believe. Clark continues, Now we should be careful to examine what a word means before we attempt to fix its meaning. Whatever... Titogmenoi may mean, which is the word we translate ordained, it is neither protitogmenoi nor proorismenoi, which the apostle used, but simple titogmenoi. In other words, there are some other words that really, you know, are stronger, I guess is what he's saying. And these words include no idea of preordination, uh, excuse me, titogmenoi, the word that's used here in Acts 13, verse 48, is not, includes no idea of preordination or predestination of any kind, Clark says. And if it and ev- and if it even did, it would be rather hazardous to say that all those who believed at this time were such as actually persevered unto the end and were saved unto eternal life. But leaving all these precarious matters, what does the word tatagmanos mean? The verb tato or tasso signifies to place, set, order, appoint, dispose. Hence it has been considered here as implying the disposition or readiness of mind of several persons in the congregations, such as the religious proselytes mentioned in Acts 13.43, who possess the reverse of the disposition of those Jews who spoke against those things, contradicting and blaspheming. Again, he's, he's pointing out the Armenian view that it's just a, a mental, emotional disposition toward receiving the gospel, not an eternal decree by God. Though the word in this place has been variously translated, yet of all the meanings ever put on it, none agrees worse with its nature and known signification than that which represents it as intending those who were predestined to eternal life. This is no meaning of the term and should never be applied to it. Let us, without prejudice, consider the scope of the place. The Jews contradicted and blasphemed. The religious proselytes heard attentively and received the word of life. The one party were utterly indisposed through their own stubbornness to receive the gospel. The others, destitute of prejudice and prepossession, were glad to hear that. In the order of God, the Gentiles were included in the covenant of salvation through Jesus Christ. They therefore, in this good state and order of mind, see it's all in the mind, that's why we believe, in this good state and order of mind believed. Those who seek for the plain meaning of the word will find it here. Those who wish to make out a sense not from the Greek word, its use among the best Greek writers in the obvious sense of the evangelist, but from their own need, of their own creed, may continue to puzzle themselves and others, kindle their own fire, compass themselves with sparks, and walk in the light of their own fire, and of the sparks which they have kindled, and in consequence lie down in sorrow, having bidden adieu to the true meaning of a passage so very simple, taking in, taken in its connection that one must wonder how it ever came to misunderstood and misapplied. Whew, baloney sausage. I use Adam Clark a lot, of course, as a commentator, and he's very good, but this is nonsense.
in my humble opinion. No, it means appointed. I haven't done this yet, but it'd be interesting to go through a bunch of English translations and see how many times you can get that word appointed as disposed. I'm going to do it right now. Hold on a second. All right. All right. I'm back. I've looked at 12 versions. They all say appointed or ordained or something like that. Chosen, designated, marked out for. None of them say disposed. I, I'm too tired to look at it anymore. That's what it means. It means all of those who were appointed by God from the foundation of the world to believe, believed. You know, this problem of free will and predestination, I was just reading some Greek mythology, and, and I read an author who pointed out that the famous play, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, is about a man named Oedipus who was told by prophets that it had been fated from him it was fate from the foundation of the world before he was born. It was fated that he would kill his father and marry his mother. Well, Oedipus heard about that. He didn't like it, and so he went all out of his way to not do that. And everything he did was done of his own free will, and yet, what did he end up doing? He ended up killing his father and marrying his mother. But that play shows that even the Greeks understood that you can have free will compatible with fate or destiny. And likewise, if a pagan Greek, if Sophocles can figure it out, why can't we Christians realize that as much as we exercise our free will and we are free to do whatever we want to and can do, but we are not free to overcome God's eternal decree. And if he's decreed for you to be saved, that means, by golly, you are going to be saved, just like these people in Pisidian Antioch. And yes, that implies the corollary that those who are not chosen are not going to be saved, but they freely go to hell because they want to go there. God's not going to violate their free will. They freely want to go there. There's not a soul in hell that doesn't want to be there. They don't want God. They hate God. They've proven it by their whole life, and they, and they get to continue in their existence of hating God. All right, enough of that theological <laughs> excursion there. A little rabbit trail. We go now to Acts 13, verses 49 and 50. So the message of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. That's the whole region of Pisidian Antioch, which, by the way, I can describe it this way. If you look at a map of Turkey, present-day Turkey, Anatolia, Asia Minor, you, the left, you can divide it into three sections. The westernmost, or the western coast there with Ephesus and so forth are. That area is called Asia. If you then look at the center part, that's Galatia. And then if you look at the eastern part of the province, of, of the uh, landmass there, the Anatolian, it's not really a peninsula, but I say, okay, the Anatolian landmass, the eastern portion of it is called Cappadocia, okay? So Galatia's in the middle of those three regions, and dead center in the middle of Galatia, I mean center from north to south and east to west, dead center is Pisidian Antioch, that's where we are. And the message of God started spreading throughout that region. That region, by the way, was a... A lot of agricultural passed through that region. We'll see when we get to, uh, get to Iconium, which is nearby. Iconium was a place where lots and lots and lots of trade went through. A lot of agricultural products went through, and so it was a bustling region. Paul always went to strategic places where there are lots of people so he can get them saved. So anyway, the message of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent women. Of course, that's not the believing Jews, but that's the non-believing leadership Jews, leader Jews of the synagogue. And by the way, you need to make that distinction. The Bible always says the Jews, and when it says the Jews, it means the non-believing Jews who crucified Jesus. It doesn't mean every Jew. Obviously, Jesus was Jewish. Jewish. Uh, all of his apostles were Jewish. And and so it's foolish to start accusing the, the Bible or the apostles of anti-Semitism. 
But the Jews incited the prominent women who worship God. Those are the God-fearers who apparently were big shots in Pisidian Antioch, proselytes, and the leading men of the city. I don't know why it's the women who were the proselytes and the men who weren't, but anyway, the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. Now, isn't this just like when you lose an argument, you shut the debate down. I'm not going to talk with you anymore. I'm going to take up my marbles and go home, and you get out of here. Reminds me of certain political people I know today. They, you know, they, they can't argue with you. For example, homosexuality. Oh, no, we're just going to kick you out and call you a hate monger and a homophobe, and we're going to shut your free speech rights down, and we're going to take you before a hate crimes commission if you're in England or in Finland or in Canada, and we're not even going to talk about it because you're nothing but a bigot. You're a Ku Klux Klansman, you stinking Orthodox Christian. We tolerantly tell you to shut your mouth up. Now, yeah, that's real tolerance, all right. Well, that's kind of what the Jews did here. They just kicked Paul and Barnabas out of the city. We go to Acts 13:51. But they, that's Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. Shaking your dust off, that was a standard Jewish practice. You went into a Gentile area. You had the nasty dog Gentiles dirt on the bottom of your feet. You shook it off to show that we don't want to carry any of this nasty dog Gentile dirt with us to our new destination. So it became a symbol of we reject what you people have done. And so that's what Paul and Barnum said. Look, we reject your nonsense. We're out of here. You want to reject God, we reject you. Now, of course, they gave him an opportunity first. You could say the same thing about Martin Luther. He gave the opportunity to the Jews first, and then he shook the dust off, except he did it with some violent rhetoric. But Paul and Barnabas, they just shook their feet off, and they went to Iconium. Now, Iconium, if you look at the map, is south and east, mostly east, a little ways, about how many miles? I can't tell from this map. Yeah, here we go. It's about, I'd say about 80 miles looking at the map as the crow flies. That's a good ways, really. And that's where he's going to take up at his next missionary stop. That's the modern Konya in Turkey, by the way. It's still there. Important crossroads. I mentioned earlier, an agricultural center right in the dead center of Galatia, which is in the dead center of the Ana of Anatolia. How do we in, uh, interpret dust off, shake the dust off your feet? I just sort of gave you a down and dirty explanation of it. The NIV study Bible says it's to show severance of responsibility. We don't, we're not responsible for your salvation anymore. You just took yourself out. Adam Clark says it means you're worse than heathen. Adam Clark says even your very land is accursed for your opposition to Christ. Now that's a different nuance. The land itself is cursed? Maybe so. This, by the way, is reminiscent of what Jesus told his disciples to do. Matthew 10:14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. I ask myself a question here. I wonder if Paul and Barnabas did this literally, or was it just an expression, a metaphor? As time went on, people said, I'll shake my dust off. Like, I wash my hands of this affair. We say that now. We don't wash our hands. We just say, I wash my hands. Pilate, I think, actually did wash his hands. But then the physical thing gets done away with, and we just have the metaphor left. I'm not sure. I think they actually probably did it. They were close enough to the Jewish practice where they probably did it. We go to verse 52, and we will finish Acts 13. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, who are the disciples? Well, it could mean Paul and Barnabas, as John Gill says, or it could be the new converts at Pisidian Antioch, as John Gill also suggests. Hmm, which is it? Well, you probably could say, well, it was all of them, doesn't matter. However, they, there might be some theological implications in, in how you interpret who the disciples were. 
If it's the new converts and they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, you could say, oh, yes, the new converts got baptized in the Holy Spirit because we know all through Acts filled, Acts chapter 2, the original filling of the Holy Spirit was a baptism of the Holy Spirit as predicted by Jesus and is referred to by Peter in Acts 11. So we could say, and the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy. If it's not talking about Paul and Barnabas. But now if it's talking about Paul and Barnabas, filled there cannot mean baptized in the Holy Spirit. In the sense of the five Pentecostal passages in Acts, it can't be because Paul was already filled with the Holy Spirit, already baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 9, so it would have to mean something else, which typically is translated as control. We, we, were, we were just, well, filled with joy and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Even though I am charismatic in my pneumatology, I think that this is probably talking, not, it's talking about a different type of filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I think it was probably referring to Paul and Barnabas. I can't prove it one way or the other, and I certainly wouldn't make a doctrinal stand anyway on this, but I just thought I'd mention that just as a matter of interest. John Gill says, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit means the same thing as spiritual joy. In other words, joy which is caused by the Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing to note here, they're filled with joy, but what was the thing that, the the bad thing that happened just proceeding they're being filled with joy they were kicked out of town they didn't care they were happy spreading the word spreading the word of jesus it doesn't matter about the bad stuff that happens as long as people are getting saved that is the greatest joy for the christian is seeing people getting saved and they got saved in Pisidian Antioch. And we are now finished. We'll finish on that good note in Acts 13. We'll take up Acts 14 next as Paul and Barnabas end up in Iconium. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this one. 